ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hilary Harper here. Hello. Coming to you from Wurundjeri land. A couple of big names in Australian music for you in this episode of Life Matters. Paul Kelly's work has been a soundtrack to many of our lives. His songs kept me company through chaotic share houses and striking out on my own, and love and loss and kids, even a little bit of growing up. And lately, Paul Kelly's been going back to one of his first loves, poetry, and he's sharing it with new generations. Plus, later on, Frances Peters Little traces the life and career of her musician father, the late and great Jimmy Little. Cover albums are nothing new for good and ill, but putting music to Shakespeare or Yeats or Plath or Whitman, that's a bit more rare. Who would you trust with that? If the dull substance of my flesh were thawed Injurious distance should not stop my way What you're hearing now is part of iconic Australian musician Paul Kelly's latest project. It's from a new album called, weirdly enough, Poetry. He's also helped make a special classroom resource to encourage teenagers to discover the magic of poetry, like he did. Paul Kelly, welcome to Life Matters. Hi, Hilary. How are you going? Good. Good to have you here with us in the studio. The song we just heard a tiny bit of was Sonnets 44 and 45 by Mm -hmm. William Shakespeare. Tell us why you chose those sonnets in particular. Um, I've put about six or seven sonnets to music over the years, and I don't really choose it. They choose me. It sort of happens through sort of leafing through the sonnets and, I guess, a musical idea appearing. So I've always always loved those sonnets. I like the way that they, they work together. You know, that, the, the first first sonnet's about the four elements. So it goes earth and water first and then air and fire in the second one. So that, they link up. And um, it's kind of like um, that first one about uh, imagining that you could go at, this, you know, at the speed of a thought. It's sort of almost science fiction-y. So it's always had a, a great appeal to me. Well, I was going to say, I mean, how does a, how does a musical idea leap out at you across four, four centuries, you know, from ideas that came from before? But they are quite modern ideas in a lot of ways, aren't they? Yeah, the sonnets are amazing. They're, they're, they're modern. They, you know, you, you keep coming back to them and discovering different things every time. Uh, they also vary, you know, because they, they rhyme and they, they have these, you know, this structure. The structure actually suits for, you know, pop music very well because of the 14 lines, you know, three lots of four lines and then a couplet at the end, a rhyming couplet in the Shakespearean sonnet. So often the first two, two lots of four kind of work as verses in a song and then there's the, the from the 12th to the 10, 11, 12. <laughs> no, <laughs> the 9th to, uh, to the 12th, the third lot of four. Four lines is actually sort of there's often what's called the turn or the volta that you know it's a change of point of view or introducing another perspective or idea, and that can that's how sort of a bridge works in a song too or a, a middle eight or whatever they call it. So they're really they're really well suited to if you put together yeah use it a couple of a couple of times which I, I've, sometimes I've you slightly rearrange the sonnet to make a, a song out of it. Or using that couplet as a chorus, and then you've got your verses and a bridge. Well, I was reading somewhere how you you sometimes get a bit bored with your own writing as a songwriter after years and years and years. Was using people's poems a way to kind of get around that? To say, look, I'll I'll use someone else's form, someone else's words, and try and put the creativity in. Uh, yeah, it was actually it was sort of accidental, really. I, I was asked to um, 
do a song cycle for ANAM, the Australian National Academy of Music, which is a school for young classical musicians from all around the country, and to work with a composer, James Ledger, contemporary composer. And we didn't, you know, we sort of had a deadline for the to do the show. We sort of said yes to it, sort of thinking, say yes and then figure out how to do it later. <laughs> the <laughs> and great thought, freelance oh, I'm not going to be able to write, you know, words are, for me writing songs, the words are the slowest part. So I said, I'm not going to be able to write a whole lot of a whole song cycle, a whole lot of words in time. Let's see if we can get some poems that around a theme. And before that, I never really put poems to music or I'd never really written the words first. I, ha- I had had the idea that that would sort of constrain the music or ma- make the whole thing run on, run on too rigid a rail. But I was completely wrong. And so doing that show sort of really unlocked a key for me of being able to write, um, use other people's words for music. Not long after we did that show, I wrote, I wrote my first sonnet or put, put music to a sonnet and then just, just kept going. So it's now no, another way for me to write songs, which is pretty cool when you've been writing songs for 40 years and you suddenly find a new way to, to do it. That's what all writers want, you know. New, new ways to do things. So you're thinking now I've got another 20, 30, 40 years left in me. It'd be great. Well, it's actually had, sort of had an effect on when I write my own words. And now sometimes I do write my words first and then, and then put music to it, which I never really used to do. We're speaking with Paul Kelly about his album, Poetry. Goes very well with a book that he put out a while ago called Love is as Strong as Death, poems chosen by Paul Kelly, 300 of them. So there's a bit of a theme emerging. And we'll talk soon too about an educational resource that he's helped put together that's up on the ABC Education website that's aiming to make sure that teenagers can have access to this incredible thing, poetry, that, that can kind of uplift us and worry us and charm us and guide us through life if we let it. It's a very eclectic mix of poems, Paul, from several centuries, several different countries. What was the guiding theme? The guiding theme was just poems I liked and I wasn't worried whether they were really well known or really obscure. The guiding sort of organising principle was just to do it by alphabetical order because I knew that would just, uh, by title, I knew that would sort of mix things up rather than go chronological or, by you know, grip them by author or, or theme. You know, it's hard to sort of group poems by theme anyway because a lot of great poems are multiple themes. So, But having it in alphabetical order meant that you got, you know, modern poems next to old poems, funny ones next to serious ones. And uh, and then they often make sort of interesting connections that you wouldn't have thought of, you know. What's uh, one that stands out for you? Oh, I think having, um, at the, having Sappho next to Tom, Thomas Hardy and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Neither of them would have expected to be yeah. next to each other. yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I love that sort of jumble. But I, I did read, you know, I, when the idea, I was approached by um, the Penguin Random House, Nicky Christa there to maybe do a book of favourite poems, and I, you know, had a whole lot right away that I thought, oh, yes, this and this and this. But then I also did, uh, a, you know, a lot of reading and, and made a lot of discoveries because, you know, just, you know, like anyone, I, there's huge gaps in my in my knowledge of poetry and poets and I tried to um, learn as much as I could. I did wonder if you were just carrying 300 poems casually around in the back of your head or whether you had to kind of go down a few rabbit holes. and Went down a lot of rabbit holes, which is great. I had a, you know, a, a long summer just reading poems at the back of the house in the sunroom. That was, you know, very enjoyable. Yeah, Paul Kelly, hard life, hard <laughs> life in... <laughs> 
<laughs> writing music and, and poetry. Uh, a lot of the poems that you cover on this album are kind of more like stories. It's a really interesting mix of the kind of traditional poems and, and very non-traditional. You've got Maxine Beniba-Clark, there's Yeats, Shakespeare, Whitman, Plath, Dylan Thomas. Let's hear a little bit of Life is Fine by Langston Hughes. I went down to the river I sat down on the bank I tried to think but I couldn't So I jumped in and sank Langston Hughes is an interesting guy, isn't he? What kind of caught your attention about him and his poem? Uh, That was actually a poem was sent to me by my partner, Sean, she said, oh, you, could pro- you could probably make a song out of this. So I didn't know that much about Langston Hughes then. This is about five or six years ago. And, um, you know, since read read quite a bit of him. He did write, uh, you know, political poems and all kinds of poems, love poems, but they often did write in a, in a song form. So, and he often did, did write poems to be made into songs. So that, that one was, was quite... Singy, I guess, straight away. That, again, that happened quickly. Generally, putting poems to music, it happens quickly or doesn't happen at all. Well, some of them seem like they're just built for singing. I mean, anything by Dylan Thomas, most of Plath and Philip Larkin, you could sing them by yourself. But um, is it easy to convert poetry into song generally, or is a lyric a different kind of beast? Um, like I said, it's, it's easy when it happens. and then, But, yeah, again... I. It's just sort of through read, reading poems and then something might spark up a, a little musical idea. So it's for me, it's easier than writing my own songs because lyrics, lyrics are the hardest part, coming up with your own lyrics. But when you've, you know, you love a poem and you've got this beautiful set of lyrics that you really like for a whole lot of different reasons. Um, if you, you know, coming up with a melody for it and you've got a song. So it's, it always feels really quick to me. So, well, and a lot of people over the decades have said that your music is a form of poetry and it works on them in the same way. Do you feel like there's something that poetry does that other forms of writing and music don't do, can't do? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it sort of enhances and heightens life. It's an intense form of speech. I think poetry is really memorable speech. So it's good poetry sort of stays with you, becomes like a companion or something that you carry around with you. Um, you know, we use poetry all the time um, when we probably don't even realise it, but people do, you know, reach for poetry at ceremony, ceremonial occasions, weddings and funerals and all kinds of gatherings. So it's, it's, it's all around us all the time. Well, and you mentioned your partner, Sean, before. I understand that sometimes you guys communicate just in rhymes or haikus for a day or two here and there. I mean, that's, that's a pretty impressive love language. But, I mean, is poetry something that can kind of do head and heart at the same time? Oh yeah, uh, I don't. I don't really understand the distinctions between head and heart, physical and spiritual. I think it's all mixed up, mixed up together. We th- we think feelingly, and we we feel as we think. So I mean, yeah, I don't. I don't really subscribe to that, those kind of separations. I'll try and force myself not to ask you for a haiku by the end of this interview, Paul <laughs> Kelly. Paul, do you remember the moment that poetry first became meaningful to you or kind of leapt into your consciousness as something you might be interested in? Well, it was at school. It was um, studying Macbeth. Uh, you know, that, that was just, I guess, sort of rocked, rocked my head. You know, it's, I still find the language of 
Shakespeare, especially in the plays, quite you know just just sort of thrilling. It's um, it, fa- it sounds like it's just sort of being made up on the spot. Um, it's got that incredible sort of energy and um, heightened intensity. So yeah, I, I love that. I mean, Mac, Mac, I think Macbeth and some like the Greek tragedies. Some of them are, are great for for teenagers because it's all in there, you know. Murder, sex, revenge, you know, stuff you can really get stuck into. Um, we also did Jeremy Manley Hopkins at school. And, again, he like, he's, like, really strange. He's sort of a really odd bird. I mean, just sort of so sort of dizzyingly rhythmic um, and playful. So he appealed to me, too, for those reasons. Yeah. So this is like in the 70s in high school in Australia. How did that go down, this interest in poetry? Was that celebrated where you were? Yeah, I was at a Christian brother school. I mean, you know, so, some some people like poetry, a few did. I mean, Jeremy Manley Hopkins, I think, in the 70s in Catholic schools, he was he was the one you always studied. So probably uh, a few of us got quite sick of him. But, yeah, he always stuck with me. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting comparing people's experiences from school at that time. I find some schools are like, great poetry, go go sick, go to the library, read read up, that's fine. And everyone thought it was fine. I went to a small country high school, so it was kind of like the secret vice. <laughs> you would take seven centuries of poetry and English home with you and just kind of furtively read yeah. through the whole <laughs> yeah. lot and then never talk to, to anyone about it ever again. Did you kind of start to see poetry around you in other places? Pop culture, maybe. Oh, yeah. Well, I was always interested in... in um in, in songs, and I started trying to pl- write songs when I was about um, 18, 19. Um, but, yeah, po- poems came out to me in different ways after school, for sure. M- you know, through my older brother was one. Walt Whitman was a big one. And Car- Khalil Gibran. So those kind of poets were in, in, the, in the air at the time, in the counterculture. And uh, so that, those poets led me on quite a few different paths. Do poems ever get worn out? You know, if they appear in one too many rom-coms, is, is that it for their power? I, I think a good poem never gets worn out. I know what you mean. It's like it's, there's some songs you think, with songs too, you think, I've heard that one too many times. It's a good song. But I think, you know, they can come back. You just uh, just maybe give it a rest and then go back to it. Or, you know, I don't, yeah, I, don't, I really don't think good poems get worn out. We're speaking with Paul Kelly, and we're going to hear another snippet from uh, his album called, weirdly enough, Poetry, based on what you call one of the greatest love poems ever written. It's called Quarantine. In the worst hour of the worst season, of the worst year, of a whole people, a man set out from the workouts with his wife. He was walking, they were both walking north. She was sick with famine fever and could not keep up. He lifted her and put her on his back. He walked like So you've got Irish heritage too, Paul, like a lot of uh, Australians. Mm. How did that poem resonate with you? It, it uh, sort of hit me over the head, I guess, when, when, I, when I came across it. I mean, the, the, some of the uh, lines in the poem, let no love poem ever come to this threshold. So the, within the poem, the author... Evan Boland, Irish author, she's she's declaring that it's an anti-love poem because it's a, you know a poem about a very hard, terrible thing that happened in the Irish famine. But what I thought what's really good about the poem is that it's, it's it is the ultimate love poem. It's a poem of 
love until death. The lines in the poem where his her feet were held against his breastbone, so they they die in the cold, and obviously her feet have got cold. And it, he said, "Put your feet on my chest, and I'll warm them up." You know, that's sort of pretty strong image. Yeah, yeah. For me, it felt like she was saying no other love poem can measure up to this brutal reality, you know, life in Ireland during the famine times. It's just, it's just a different world, world apart. You can't, you can't approach that concept. It's a bit like people saying there's no art after Auschwitz, you know, those two things are incompatible anymore. But it was, it was an amazing thing to hear it set to music, this kind of beautiful, relentless beat taking it forward. You could feel the walking that they were doing. Was that one of the poems that you heard from your auntie Pat? I understand she's at least one of your family members who loves a poem and loves a performance and, and that happens a bit when you get together. Yeah, auntie, auntie Pat left us a few years ago now, but um, no, we mainly had we were sort of the old, a lot of the old, uh, the old blokes from school, you know, Ten- Tennyson and Hardy was one, um, Keats more of the 19th century poets. Quarantine by Evan Bolan was more recent when I was, I was involved in a show putting uh, Irish poems to music about seven years ago. So that's when I came across a poem for the first time. And Paul, it's fascinating to me that you've had this streak of number one albums in recent years. The millennials love you, good taste millennials, but you've uh, been involved in this classroom resource too with the ABC to help get hold of even younger audiences. Tell us a bit about this resource, what's in it and what it does. It's uh, it's kind of multifaceted. So it it takes takes a, takes a poem and gives often has gives you a couple of different performances of it. Sometimes me me singing the poem. Sometimes um, the other two people involved are Maxine Benima Clark reading poems and uh, Alice Keith. So Maxine Benima Clark re- reads one of her poems. She also reads some of the others and. Uh, yeah, it was that, that, that sort of came about because I was approached by the... We were... When the Book of Poems came out, my the anthology, that was 2019, I think. See, time goes quickly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we did some... Alice and I did some shows to, around the country to sort of la- launch that, and it was, they were filmed, and then that's when ABC came up with the idea to, oh, let's cut, cut together some of the footage and... And then write some content, and write some write some questions, and write some things about the poems, uh, as well as having me talk a bit about the poems. And that's when um, that's when Emma came in and started put put that all together. So it was really went out of my out of my hands then, and over to Emma. The Paul's just made this gesture of handing over. <laughs> Here's the raw material. Now it's yours. Emma Jenkins co-created this new poetry resource with Paul Kelly and the ABC. She's Education Officer at the Victorian Association for the Teaching of English. Emma, great to have you with us today Thanks, too. Thanks, Hilary. Thank you. Why is it so important for kids to learn about poetry? I think that poetry makes up just one part of a super important and rich literary diet that kids need to have in order to function, emote, express themselves in the world. So I think poetry is a crucial part of that. And I think there would be a lot of teachers in the classrooms who would agree with me and a lot of students who, like Paul, when they were at school, really love the opportunity to delve into poetry in the classroom. How do teachers feel about teaching poetry these days? Is it is it easy or hard? I think, like most things, there's probably a bit of a mixed bag, at least, you know, when people ring me up, I get a, f- a fair few comments either way. Um, but I think teachers could probably be a little bit reluctant because it it is so, um, it's open to so many different interpretations. And I think some of those ambiguities are what causes a little bit of confusion. There's a lot of 
um, interest in being right and presenting the right answer and poetry sometimes doesn't always have that and it's open to an individual interpretation, which is what makes it so fantastic and the, the, that's the beauty of poetry, right, is that we can all you know, interpret something different from each piece. Yeah, some of my favourite times at uni were poetry tutorials, which just end in open <laughs> argument for an hour. Um, is there a difficulty, do you think, for kids these days to connect with poetry or is it something they're really ready to do? I think, I certainly think having a resource like this with Paul Kelly as a frontman is definitely going to, you know, encourage students to delve a little bit more into poetry, particularly, as you said, the albums that you make, Paul, continue to be super popular amongst younger people. And poetry is studied widely across Victoria. There's several texts on the VCE text list in particular from a whole range of poets from different genres, eras, themes and opinions. Um, And they're all studied across Victoria, which is really great to see. But, you know, I think actually, I was going to say no, that maybe students weren't as, you know, weren't as keen to engage with poetry, but I don't think that's the case. I think now more than ever, they're probably exposed to poetry more than they realise. And particularly with the rise of Instagram poets, you know, we've got Bo Taplin or Rumi Kaur, those uh, poems that they see often and around all the time. So I think they're probably ready to engage with poetry and are interested in poetry and what they can express through the form. It can be a bit harder, though, to kind of wedge your way into Shakespeare or yeah. something like that, can't it? Because you've got to keep flipping to the back. To you've got to read the translation. Glossary. Of course, yeah. yes. Shakespeare definitely poses a, a different hurdle, I think, because of those language difficulties that some students, or all students, arguably have because it's a totally different language. But, um, yeah, I think that once the language is aside and you can make an interpretation from it, to see a dramatisation of it, a performance of it, then that makes it a little bit more accessible. Does it help to have people not just like Paul Kelly's, you know, video presence in the classroom in, as part of this resource, but people like Maxine Bonnier-Baclark, mm. who is um, part of Paul's project as well, and, and goes into schools and talks to kids about poetry and having that diversity of um, poetic styles and of poets accessible Absolutely. To. I think that's really important. And I was, I think one of the great things about the resource is that Maxine's reading the poems, Alice is reading the poems, Paul and Alice are performing them, because it re- you can really see how important poetry performance actually is. You know, it's written often for the ear, for to be performed and read aloud and having different voices, different accents. You can get the rhythm, the tone, the cadence of the poem um, and really hone in on that performance element. Yeah, so I think, you know, having people like Maxine out there talking about the fantastic work that she does and, and like this resource too is great. Yeah, it's so amazing, isn't it, going to see a Shakespeare play for the first time or, or some slam poetry yeah. or something and just having the words come off the page and hit you around the head, like you said yeah. before, Paul. Oh, that's what it's meant yeah. to do. So how might you like to see this resource used in the classroom, Emma? Do you, do you want to see some performance? Do you want to see people writing their own things? That would be fantastic. I think some of the best poetry units that I've done as when I was a teacher in the classroom did involve students getting up and performing their own poems. Um, so I think if students are feeling brave enough to be able to write their own poems and perform them, perform them, that would be as is intended of the resource, I think. Um, But it's it's been designed to be projected on the whiteboard as an interactive resource. So the idea being that a teacher can step into the classroom, click through the resources, and there's some questions in there, there's some poetic devices um, that are from the poems themselves, some discussion questions that the students and the teachers can work through, and then there's a little quiz that I did. I practiced the quiz. I only got five out of six, so (laughs) maybe it's too difficult, but there's a quiz at the end. So it's designed to be used in an interactive way, which I think complements the style of poetry nicely, the discussion, the thoughts, the feelings, the different interpretations. So I'd like to see it used like that, and I'd like to see some students writing some poems. Well, what do you see in students when they've been able to make that connection, when they kind of understand what what is in a poem? 
I think, you know, a lot of teachers will talk about that light bulb moment and I, I would love to come on here and sound too cliche, but when students can connect the dots between, you know, the language that they're hearing, like you said, with Shakespeare and what it actually means on the page or when they write their own poems and feel like they're able to um, emote in a particular way or evoke a particular kind of emotion that perhaps they haven't been able to before. It really is something special um, and that's why we stay in teaching, right, for those moments. Well, and it's like people, people talk about the novel being a pathway to empathy. Yeah. Poetry can do that too, can't it, but just in a really distilled, intense form. Exactly. I think you've got to cut out the noise, so to speak. I mean, that's not to say the novels are noisy, but, you know, <laughs> you've really got to hone it in. And the form, as you said, both of you before, the structure and the form in itself, the restrictions of a particular style, a particular line formation, a rhyming scheme, whatever it might be, tends to create better results, I think, and more creativity because you're limited and you're under pressure. You've got to make more concise choices, be more direct, succinct, whatever it might be. So I think you're right. Yeah, I, I've felt a lot of admiration during my high school and university years for poets. Wow, that is amazing what you've done there, man. Good on you. Um, Paul Kelly, what do you hope the kids get from this? Oh, I pretty much agree with Emma. I think just, I think, you know, just to understand that poetry is not, not really uh, this thing to be afraid of. You know, just have fun with it. Poetry can, can be your friend. Um, you can join the whole history of poetry by just starting, starting trying to write your own poem. So um, it's not it's not that far off. It's not ungraspable. It's not unreachable. It's very much, it's like I said, it's all around us anyway. Um, certain figures of speech come that we use in everyday everyday life, um, you know, vanish into thin air. You know, that that's from Shakespeare. So, we, we, our poetry is all around us. So I think it's just a matter of not being afraid of it. That's what I'd like like to happen. Because it can feel a bit inaccessible, can't it? For example, if you, I don't know, if you come from a background where it's its not part of your life or it's not celebrated, seen as something important to, to be interested in, or it's just the language is opaque because you haven't had access to the tools to unpick it. How do you get around that? Well, I think, you know, one way that schools schools these days are just, just start studying hip-hop. I mean, that's, there's all those things of, we talk about in poetry are in there. There's, there's obviously restrictions of, of a form because of the music and the beat, but there's heaps and heaps of alliteration and rhythm and internal rhyme and, um, and there's stories. So I, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of, lot of great ways into poetry through, through hip-hop. Is there any young songwriters that we should be keeping an eye out on who've got a really good ear for lyrics that you've heard lately? Uh, you know, I think uh, there's people like Dobby and Barker and um, a lot of great hip-hop all over the place. Briggs, uh, I'm probably not well across it as a lot, of, a lot of younger people. Says the man who's worked with Briggs and a whole bunch of younger people and quite often gives them a space on his stage to sing a little song. Thelma Plum, I think, is another one. Interesting. Uh, we're speaking with Paul Kelly and Emma Jenkins, who have both been involved in this education resource that brings poetry into schools and helps to hopefully crack the nut for a lot of kids. Paul, just to finish up with, what do you think might open your next 300-poem anthology of most love works? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I got I got no idea. <laughs> uh, you know, the good thing about um, poetry is that there's always there's always new ones coming coming along. Wasan Shire, who wrote the the, the poem home that uh, is in the resource in, in the book, she's recently put out you know a, a book of her poems. She's been putting out sort of short chapbooks and sh- shorter editions, but the, she's just released. Um, uh, a book of collected poems. I think that's they're, they're, she's great. She's really strong, and uh, highly recommend her. 
excellent Wasan Shire, just one of the poets uh, that's been catching Paul Kelly's eye in recent time. Paul, thanks so much for coming in and chatting about your projects with us. Oh, pleasure. Thanks for having us. And Emma Jenkins, great to have you with us too. My pleasure. Thanks, Hilary. Do you want a, do you want a haiku? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hilary, Emma, a pleasure talking to you outside. It's raining. <laughs> The most Melbourne haiku ever. (laughs) Paul Kelly, so lovely to chat to you. Thank you. Pleasure. Paul Kelly there with Emma Jenkins, Education Officer at the Victorian Association for the Teaching of English. Next up, Beverly Wang with a story about another Australian musician, the late Jimmy Little, as told by his daughter, Frances. Jimmy Little was one of the most loved musicians of the last century. And to quote his own song, he was a Yorta Yorta man born on the banks of the Murray River. And he made a name for himself and gained popularity in mainstream Australia, despite the fact that this was a time when Aboriginal people were not even counted in the census. A biography of Jimmy has just been published. It's called Jimmy Little, a Yorta Yorta man. And the author is his daughter, Frances Peters Little. Frances, welcome to Life Matters. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. It's lovely to have you here. Now, there's been a lot written about your dad. Also, he has his own body of musical recordings. What did you want to add to the record with this book? Oh, um, look, it's, there has been a lot written by journalists, and they're always focused on the, the same stuff about you know, raising from poverty to fame and all that kind of thing. But there was a lot more to it in terms of what that was like, you know, as a person, what that was like in terms of how it affected him and his family and uh, the way he saw himself and and his music. So, you know, yeah, people could talk about, you know, there's so many stories out there, you know, people talking about how they wrote, rose to fame and all that sort of stuff, but there's more to it and particularly with the title being A Yorta Yorta Man. So I wanted people to understand what it was like to be an Aboriginal person during those years. Mm. Now, this book by you, his daughter, is quite a long time coming. Mm. When was this idea first raised that you should write this book about your father? Well, the idea to have a biography written came out of the, emerged from out of that popularity period of Messenger and the late, uh, 90s and early 2000s and so people did want to have a book written and so Dad's manager at the time who was Buzz Bidstrup uh, approached my parents about the biography and my parents turned around and said oh we want our daughter to write it. Well daughter didn't know. <laughs> you being the daughter yeah, obviously. being the daughter And, uh, you know, so they insisted on that. And I I didn't really think I was up for the task. I thought that it really should go to a professional writer who would know how to do all these sorts of things. And so by the time, you know, kind of like they kept insisting and, you know, I was trying to do a PhD at the time, I thought, oh, well, maybe I can make it my PhD, (laughs) two birds with one stone. Um, And it just wasn't working as a PhD. But definitely wasn't working for me. I had a lot of support uh, from university supervisors, but it was just too much um, factual stuff rather than, you know, the personal, the, you know, it was a, it was about him. So you had to dig a little deeper into the personal. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I could still write it as, you know, a third person, stand back from it, because the story should be about him, not about me. It's not about my experience of him. It's about who he was. And so I had that responsibility. Um, so, you know, um, there was a lot of things that I included, which was um, a lot of interviews so that we can get and hear his voice throughout the book. There's a lot of his poetry that hasn't been published before. Um, and so, you know, standing back, hearing the creative side of him in context to how Aboriginal people were living, but also the emergence of the Australian music industry during the 60s. He came from a family of musicians, didn't he? You come mm. from a very musical family. Your cousin is, is Deborah Cheatham. Yes, that's right. We're very proud. Well, she didn't know. She was always told that, you know, that's Uncle Jimmy, and she thought that was just uncle, you know, but it was real uncle, you know. Um, and she grew up, you know, being a, a fostered out, and so she didn't really have a, a musical background, but it was there somewhere. And uh, Dad's parents were vaudevillians. Um, his grandfather was a violinist. Um, wasn't famous, but, you know, a violinist nonetheless. And, uh, yeah, there's some um, Dad's brothers and sisters who, you know, all performed. They had plenty of go in them. And uh, I did a bit of music for a while, but I, I've got to say I don't like the stage. <laughs> and my son now, you know, he lives in Melbourne, uh, James Henry, and he does a lot of performances around here. What a legacy. What a musical legacy to have so precious. Um, in your book, Jimmy Little, Yorta Yorta Man, each chapter starts with lyrics from Jimmy's songs. And in fact, the name of your book shares a name with one of his songs, Yorta Yorta Man. How do you think, Francis, he used his music to express his aboriginality and connection to country, in particular at a time when white audiences may not have been very receptive to that? He was singing to two groups at the same time, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Look, it was um, back in those days, you didn't have songs on the radio about you know, stolen children. You didn't have songs about land rights, you know, back in the 60s. And my dad, you know, wasn't really interested in being political. Um, he found politics was way too negative. And he thought, look, what I can do, I can sing. And if that goes out there and changes a few minds, then, yeah, that's the best way to do it um, for him. But that's, he had to do it that way. You know, he couldn't, uh, you know, people think that every, you know, Aboriginal person was always political and always an activist. Not, no, if you go back further and you'll see that that's not necessarily the case, you know. Um, so, and in his, con, you know, conviction of, of believing in Aboriginal music and Aboriginal singers, even if they sang pop songs and things, is that then he started the coloured show, which was a review that toured all around, you know, Queensland and New South Wales and a bit of Victoria. And this was a time when Aboriginal people weren't, a lot of Aboriginal people weren't allowed into some of these venues. And when he'd go in there with, you know, Aboriginal people singing and it would sort of change the minds mm. of people. So it, it was effective for that time. 
That's such a, it's a very Christian song, mm. especially now for our 2023 years. Was this a significant choice, Francis? Why do you think Royal Telephone was such a big hit for him? Well, it, it was already a hit for Burl Ives in, in the States. He sang Royal Telephone. Um, Australia at that time was also largely Christian. Uh, and Dad, you know, was like a lot of Aboriginal people. We grew up hearing Christian songs and on the missions and all that. So, you know, they offered it Festival Records, which was new, offered the song to Dad. He said, yep, yeah, I'll do it. Uh, however, one of the things was that it, uh, sort of people thought that he was trying to preach Christianity and... Um, but he was just singing gospel songs and there was a lot of people in the States, you know, with black American artists who were singing gospel and Elvis even sang gospel and, you know, nobody was saying they were trying to preach Christianity to everybody. So, you know, as a singer, he was just singing a song which was popular and, um, you know, gospel. It, it was in step with the context of the times, but you're saying a little bit of double standard was there? Yeah, that some people think, the songs that you sing are who you are, and you know that was that was not um, you know even with his own family. You say, oh, look, you know, I hope they don't think I'm, you know. But it, but he would make it very clear that you know he had no denomination of any sort and and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, it was it was a double standard. It was also misunderstood. He well, he did follow it up with another song, uh, Onward Christian Soldier in 1965. And in the book you wrote that people took him to be a rampant Christian. Did that bother yeah. him at all? Well, yes, it did. It did. It, um, you know, it, it wasn't, he saw it as music rather than trying to convert people. <laughs> And, you know, you can't help what people take you for, um, you know, as a singer or actor or whatever. You can't really help that. Um, I don't think uh, he may have been naive in that. He may have thought, oh, no, I better not do this because of that. Um, but, you know, that wasn't really, you know, to sort of say I can't do this or I can't do that would also be repressive, I think. Well, there's always image-making and PR when it comes to the music mm. industry and promoting artists at that time. You know, at that time, what do you think, uh, what kind of image was the industry trying to promote via your dad, Jimmy Little, and did the choice of Christian songs play into that? Was there a, a kind of image that they wanted Jimmy to come across as? Yeah, I, I think Festival Records saw that there was, you know, something pretty marketable here and, you know, like I said, you know, Australia was very Christian um, and uh, so it was popular. Um, so, yeah, look, it, it kind of, even some of the album covers, they'd have him wearing a collar, you know, uh, not not a, you know, church one, but he'd have these white collars that would sort of, resemblance, you know, of a, 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 a minister or something. Um, that was their marketing. But, you know, later on when he did um, other songs like Baby Blue or uh, it was just country, you know, um, or he, he sang reggae, you know, um, you know, he had longer hair then. He wore, he wore a lot of flowery shirts. Um, 
And, uh, yeah, and then he did Messenger and so, you know, kind of, yeah, I think it's part of that thing of people think they know who the person is by the music they sing. Well, also in the book you write, there was a view of Jimmy as an assimilated Aboriginal man whitewashed by Christianity and assimilation in general. How aware was your dad of this perception and how did that sit with him? Both my parents were well aware of that. And, um, you know, to tell you the truth, they just ignored it. They they just thought, if that's the way they want to see you, um, what can you do about it? And you'd be wasting your time trying to be ruled by, you know, certain numbers of people about how they perceive you. Uh, so, um, you know, there was a lot of Aboriginal people, particularly during those years of assimilation policies and things where... You know, governments thought that what they were doing was making Aboriginal people forget that they were Aboriginal and they were just, you know, ordinary white Australian citizens. Um, and we didn't do that. I mean, you know, that there was it wasn't just my parents. It was like a lot of people's parents. They'd moved to the city. They lived their own lives. They went to work every day, you know, and they still maintain their Aboriginality. I'm very proud of it as well. So, you know, this idea or this concept that he was converted uh, is just ludicrous because nobody else was converted. I mean, if if the assimilation policy would be successful, um, well, we wouldn't be doing, you know, songs, you know, have wonderful people like Archie Roach or Troy Cassadaly. Um, you know, that wouldn't be happening. So it didn't work. And people, I think, overplayed that. And um, to my parents' credit, they just wouldn't listen to it. I'm curious, Francis, when did uh, your dad, Jimmy Little, discover his love of performing? Uh, look, that's, um, that's really easy. Uh, my dad was definitely his parents' son. They were vaudevillians back in the 20s and the 30s. He grew up watching um, his parents perform, his uncles. Uh, music was um, a very, I think it was a wonderful way of um, maintaining culture and, and escaping a lot of the horrors and hard times that they had. And so he grew up watching it, so it, was, it really was, you know, natural. He made his radio debut in Sydney at the age of 16 on Australia's Amateur Hour. What happened then? Uh, how that came about was um, Dad was always doing lots of talent quests and stuff along the south coast, New South Wales. And, uh, you know, the radio, it was national and people would hear this. And so, you know, uh, my grandfather and a few other people, oh, Jimmy, you should go on that. And... Um, so to get up there, um, they jumped on the back of a, the only way they can get to Sydney, jumped on the back of a, a, a bean truck that was taking all these beans to the mar you know, hay market. And that meant that, you know, those days the road from Nara up to Sydney, you know, you travel all night on this windy road so they can get there really early in the morning to sell the beans. So they had to ride at the back on a, you know, <laughs> with all the beans, all the beans. and uh, arrive at Haymarket at some ungodly hour. And uh, so Pop walked him around and said, right, you need a good shirt. 
you know, let's get a guitar and uh, you go, you know, son, you got to look good, you know, radio. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so, yeah, my grandfather, because he was a singer too, um, you know, so they went there and he, I think he came second. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that sort of, the interesting thing was too, a lot of people could hear him sing and they liked him. They didn't, couldn't tell he was Aboriginal, right? So, you know, yeah, he was uh, popular for a while. Would have been a pivotal moment and what what an incredible story uh, to, to go with that. 1959 was a big year because uh, he finally quit his day job and was able to support himself. And a lot of opportunities came at that time, didn't they, Francis? Yeah, um, he got um, a role in a film that... Um, where he actually had those days, um, it was very hard to get any Aboriginal people with speaking roles. Uh, so he, he, he appeared in a film uh, called Shadow the Boomerang, which was an American production. Um, and then he was able to do recordings that, um, like Danny Boy and, <laughs> um, you know, El Paso and... And they were hitting the charts. Uh, so these things, things were coming up in the 50s before, long before Royal Telephone. And even at that period of time when Royal Telephone, you know, was recorded, you know, we hadn't had the um, 1967 referendum. There was no uh, freedom ride. You know, it wasn't like Aboriginal people were always in the news. The issues weren't so widely known. So it was just really him and his voice and, and being able to break down some of those barriers. Even being there would have been an extraordinary act and would have been quite something to, to kind of stand there on the stage alone. Now, around that era, you were born and he even wrote a song for you when you were 18 months old. Francis, you're having a bit of a reaction right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's it um, like to hear that song? Well, just then I thought it was interesting that he sang the words, um, no one could steal her away. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, at a time when, you know, so many Aboriginal children were being stolen. Um, but, yeah, look, I'm 65. I'm not that 18-month-year-old baby. Um, and, look, the thing is I, I've grown up hating that song, but now I can appreciate it's it. It's so special. Yeah. Really, yeah. I bet as a kid you went, oh, this, but yeah. now to kind of think back at who he was, mm. it must be very, very special. And you're right, that lyric, she knows all the while that no one can steal her away. Mm. It makes me think it was uh, a, a subtle reference to the Stolen Generations. And to say that at a time mm. when the Stolen Generations were actively occurring, yep. in hindsight, that is actually quite radical. Yeah, well, he did record, before he did um, that song, he recorded his father's song, which was like the first protest song that went commercial, uh, Give the Coloured Lad a Chance. And it was all about that period of time in the 40s where Aboriginal people were not getting jobs and all the, pe the people would come back from overseas from the war and take those jobs. The soldiers had you know, be needed. Women had to stop working. Aboriginal people had to stop working because they didn't have jobs anymore. So, yeah, he sang radical songs back then. You know, speaking of uh, those radical songs, uh, your father, Jimmy Little, also played a part in the 1967 referendum, which made Aboriginal people counted 
in the Australian population. He urged Aboriginal people to enrol to vote. Uh, how strongly did he feel about this and why did he get involved? Uh, well, for Catsey at that time was the Federation of Council of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And they, you know, they could see that there were certain, you know, uh, well-known Aboriginal people like my dad, uh, also footballers at that time, um, that could be of an influence um, to get them onto the, the electoral roll because uh, there was no sense of people feeling, why bother voting when there's no one representing me or my issues? And also it was very difficult. It wasn't as easy as what people, even if they were legally allowed to vote, it wasn't that easy. If you think about how do people in Northern Territory who didn't speak English as a first language, how many Aboriginal people lived in rural and, and remote areas um, and how many of them were allowed to, you know, gain access to the polling booth. Some places they made it really difficult for them to vote. So this was sort of saying, no, have a say, get out there and you know, vote. And uh, so he was always called upon, not only by the referendum people, but a lot of wherever there were things where they wanted to discuss Aboriginal issues, they needed to have someone like him who could be an influence. Now, in the course of researching the book, which was many years in the making, uh, you would have had the opportunity to ask your, your both your parents, but your dad in particular, about certain moments in his career and what he was thinking, you know, as the daughter, but also the the author who has to have some remove. I'm wondering, what did you most want to learn about your father, Jimmy Little, the singer, um, and what surprised you? Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I was looking uh, for anything, you know, to... Um, but it certainly um, the thing that the most profound thing for me was after publishing the book and and learning that because my, my father was known as someone who was a very gentle uh, person and um, I think what really stood out for me was that how strong you could be as well as be gentle. So many times we think that, you know, all Aboriginal people are either activist or depressed or angry all the time. And that's me. <laughs> but um, but I think, you know, the strength in being able to sort of stand up there in the 60s when people didn't like Aboriginal people, didn't even want to know about them, and still, you know, hold his own and uh, win them over. Um, and then, you know, sort of all the criticisms of the Christianity stuff or you know, assimilation policies, all those sorts of things, he was able to keep his eyes on the prize and that strength of character that's in there. And you don't have to be angry to be strong. Later in his career, with Messenger being the hit that it was in 1999, do you sense that he felt freer at that stage of his career with everything he'd done behind him to express himself more authentically or or or, you know, delve into a more personalised musical style? Um, I think it was just um, um, the brilliance, I think, of Brendan Gallagher, who had this vision about what these songs could be um, by Australian, you know, music writers and things. And he was looking for someone who knew how to do an interpretation 
of music, of songs. Um, so he saw that in Dad. So he and Dad would get together and be able to sort of like talk through all those things about, hey, look, how do we approach this? This is a pop song that was in the 80s, da-da. You know, so they'd have to sort of say, no, but how do you want to tell it, Jimmy, as a singer? And um, and they listened to each other and they were able to um, come up with something with the Messenger album that Dad had never done anything like that before. Um, so there was a freedom. There was, you know... By that time in the 80s and the, the 90s, there were a lot more well-known Aboriginal artists as well. Well, looking around at uh, music in Australia today, it's so full of First Nations talent. And I wonder, and the end of your book uh, also is filled with quotes and reflections from, you know, Dawn Walker, Christine Anu, Troy Kasser-Daly, Dan Sultan, all of these people where do you see the influence of Jimmy Little to this day in Australian music? Oh, good question. Um, well, Dad didn't um, think that he was leading the charge. My dad always thought, it's going to happen anyway, right? There's so many talented Aboriginal people, it's going to happen anyway. Um, but he just got out there earlier and... Uh, I don't know where it's leading. I think that, you know, I know that mum and dad were just thrilled with seeing the diversity, uh, the opportunities, um, the talent of so many Aboriginal people, not just in music but, you know, film and, and all sorts of things. So, you know, I, you know, people sort of say, oh, look, he opened the doors for them or that was his legacy, but... Funny enough, he didn't see it that way. He just thought it's going to happen and that he was there, it was the timing was right for him. Well, it certainly has happened. And Francis Peters Little, congratulations on completing the book and thank you so much for talking to Life Matters. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Francis Peters Little speaking with Beverly Wang. Francis's book, Jimmy Little, A Yorta Yorta Man, is out now. Next time on Life Matters, deep listening. You might be hearing a noise or a sound, but are you really taking it in? Experts say that deep listening is the act of listening for pleasure with purpose. Learn how to listen mindfully and find out how it can open up your life. Hope you can join me then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.